You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed. A'udhu billahi minash shaitanir rajeem. Bismillahir rahmanir rahim. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome to another episode of the Breakfast Show here on the Voice of Islam radio station. Um, it is four minutes past seven on Tuesday, the 26th of September, 2023. And you're listening to myself, Samara Angelis Ahmed. And we will be with you, God willing, all the way up until nine o'clock. So if you do have any questions, any remarks, any comments that you'd like to make, please feel free to do so. The number for you, as always, is 0208-687-7878. And of course, you can hit us up on our socials on Twitter and on Instagram at Voice of Islam UK. Um, we are talking about some very interesting topics today. Um, God and science, or no God and no science, um, says Dr. Meyer. Um, I, that's the first segment for the day. The, secondly, we're speaking about the Sandman effect, how dreams influence work productivity. And last but not least, we're going to be speaking about in unity we remember World Alzheimer's Awareness, uh, Awareness Month. Um, so those are the three topics today. We do have a, a, a quite a lineup as well, uh, quite a few guests um, coming on today uh, for, for today's show to speak about the various topics. Um, but by all means, if uh, you would like to contribute, remember this is your radio station and we love for you to get involved. So do pick up the phone and give us a call at 0208-687-7878. And like I said earlier, you can hit us up on our socials and on uh, on Twitter and on Instagram at Voice of Islam UK. Um, before we uh, get into these topics, uh, Jalees, how are you doing and what's the weather like? Yeah, by the grace of uh, God, I am doing well. And uh, looking at the weather today, um, it does seem like it's getting chilly. And the morning was quite chilly. When uh, we start with today, we see that uh, variable cloud and scattered showers for many. These more likely in the south and east during the morning. Wetter in the northwest with heavy rain pushing northeastwards. Moving on to tonight, we see turning the tonight is tonight is turning drier with clearing skies as showers become confined to the far north. However, cloud will gradually thicken for southern England, Wales, and Northern Ireland during the early hours. Wednesday, tomorrow we'll see storm. Uh, rain and strong winds across the UK. These spreading northwest and eastwards through the day. Rain could be heavy and persistent, particularly in the west. And now an outlook for Thursday to Saturday. Staying breezy but turning drier for many on Thursday, albeit some rain may linger in the far north and some drizzle in the west, turning wetter for western areas later in the day. With with longer spells of rain moving in. Showers in the northwest on Friday with sunshine developing elsewhere. Saturday looks to be generally dry um, in the in the north, but rain may move into the south. So it does look like it is getting, um, uh, there'll be a little bit of drizzle and rain uh, in the upcoming days. Mm-hmm. Um. Uh, so I mean, it, it is that time uh, t- time of year when you need to have your your umbrella with you, isn't it? And your yeah. in your car, in your bag, wherever it may be. But it always needs to be handy, um, just in case as well. Yeah. Um, 
we're not going to be um, going through the front pages today, uh, as we do have a lot to cover. Uh, just quickly, as a, as a roundup, um, we can see fresh uh, Russell Brand uh, allegations and call for asylum reform in most of uh, the newspapers today. Um, and the Daily Star reports uh, that the cost of living has led to a rise in the number of rabbits, hamsters, guinea pigs and other pets getting abandoned. It says the issue has left the RSPCA at, uh, quote-unquote, a breaking point. Um, so that's the, the, the roundup for the news. Unfortunately, we can't get th- uh, through more of it uh, today just because of the um, the amount that we do have to cover. Um, but just getting straight into this first topic, God and science, or no God and no science, says Dr. Meyer. Um so if we if we look at this topic, uh, the relationship between God and science is a topic of deep fascination. Some argue that science can exist without God, whilst others emphasize that science couldn't exist without a supreme power. They suggest that the very principles upon which scientific inquiry is based, such as the laws of physics and mathematics, reflect on underlying intelligence and purpose. This Perspective underscores the idea that science and spirituality can coexist with the exploration of the natural world seen as a means to understand the beauty and complexity of God's wonderful creation. Um, We do have uh, a lot to cover and we'll be speaking to uh, a number of guests as well and we're going to be speaking about how to uh, uh, differentiate between religious traditions, uh, their view on uh, um, between God and scientific discovery, uh, some arguments in relation to the existence of God, uh, teleological, cosmological, uh, and evolution uh, as well. Um, on on top of that, the ontological uh, argument as well, and 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 giving proofs uh, that God exists as well. Um, and uh, even talking about scientific discoveries that have been mentioned in the Holy Quran, which which prove that there is a higher existence as well. And that is um, what we'll be covering throughout the course of this first segment. Uh, and so, like I said, if anyone would like to get involved, um, let us know what your opinion on the uh, on this is, uh, what your take is, um, 0208-687-7878. So, Jalees, how do different religions, uh, how how are their traditions, um, and what are what they view um, as the relationship between God and scientific discovery? We'll we'll go through, I think, maybe Islam and Christianity, um, and maybe if time permits, and throughout the uh, course of the, the the segment, we'll we'll be able to uh, discover other uh, religions as well. Yeah, sure. So. Um uh, Christianity. <clears throat> if we look at the uh, Christianity, we see the Bible encourages the uh, scientific exploration of the world and has related uh, verses that points at the uh, cosmological concepts. However, um, in the you know seventeenth and eighteenth centuries, the philosophy of empiricism, which is the belief that all knowledge, uh, knowledge is discovered through our physical senses, um, began to take hold of uh, the hard sciences. And um, you know, excluded God from any discussion regarding the physical world. Um, with Islam, we see that Islam has always uh, encouraged exploring the world and um, giving attention even to the minor events, as everything has uh, you know a reflection of Allah um, in it. Um, from evolution to cosmology, 
multiple times various scientific concepts are mentioned in the Holy Quran, which we will, of course, delve into in this uh, segment. Um, some metaphorically, while others um, clearly, uh, you know, have been mentioned in the Holy Quran. You know, Muslim scientists and inventors, you know, including Arabs, Persians, and you know, uh, people from uh, Turkey were probably, you know, hundreds of years ahead of their counterparts in the European Middle Ages. For example, um, Al-Batani, who is an Arab uh, mathematician, scientist and uh, astronomer, uh, astronomer who, you know, improved um, existing values for the length of the year and the seasons. Um, we have various other scholars as well. For example, Ibn Zuhr, who was an Arab physician and surgeon. Um, who you know penned um, uh, a lot of influential books and um, you know in 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 uh, re recent um, uh, years as well um, uh, just uh, we have we we have a professor Abdus Salam who is a uh, who was a um, Nobel Prize winner whose work led to the discovery of the Higgs boson particles so you know as Islam encourages um, its followers um, to you know delve into uh, science and and ponder over the world we see that various scholars um, in this religion have have emerged throughout time um, and uh, yeah that this is the the, the emphasis that uh, Islam gives on both uh, science and um, its link between religion as well Mm -hmm. um, more on that in just a short while but uh, for now we do have with us on the line our first guest for the show Dr. Bethany uh, Solareda uh, she's rec she received her PhD in theology from the University of Exeter and an M MCS in uh, interdisciplinary studies from Regent College uh, Vancouver she specialises in theology concerning evolution and the problem of suffering her current work is about the theological possibilities and human vocation in the light of irreversible changes in ecological degradation um, Assalamualaikum, peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Good morning. It's really lovely to be here. Thank and you for having me. And it's a pleasure to have you on. You're very welcome and thank you for being with us. Um, we're speaking about God and science or no God and no science, as uh, says uh, Dr. Maya, and, and that's the topic for this first segment uh, today. Um, and the first question that we wanted to ask you was, how does faith relate to psychology? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, so psychology is, of course, the, the study of the mind and human behavior. And insofar as, as faith is something that happens amongst other places in the mind and, and relates to human behavior, psychology has, has a, lot to, a lot to help, a lot to say, a lot to input. And so you could look at questions like what the cognitive science of religion looks at, which is the building blocks of religious belief, sort of do... Do all religions work on, on basic fundamental principles of the mind and, and how behavior works in groups? Um, or are there very different ways that they operate across religious traditions? Uh, or you could look at some of the intersections between mental health and psychology. So psychology can begin to look at where is religious belief healthy and where can it start to intersect with mental health where practice can become pathological. And there's lots of different ways that psychology can intersect with faith. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of times we see people raising allegations uh, and questioning um, the topic of, of suffering um, when it comes to a higher being, a supreme being. 
Um, and obviously, different religions have different views on this. Um, but how does being religious affect people's experiences of suffering, do you think? Yeah, well, suffering is, is a particular uh, problem for the monotheistic traditions, so for Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, because they all hold that there's only one God, so there's no... There's no cosmic fight that's going on. There's no way in which God is is uh, sort of having to battle for control. So they have a view that God is uh, both absolutely powerful and and very good. And and so there there comes this problem of well, why why do bad things happen then? Can't can't God control what's going on? And if God can control what's going on, why does the world look so bad mm-hmm. um, so much of the time? And so it turns out that the, the way people answer that question has a real effect on how they encounter suffering in their life. So some people hold very carefully to an idea that everything happens because God wills it, uh, that, that that becomes a real source of, of strength and the ability to endure because they say, I don't know what's going on, but I trust that God does and that there's a way forward through this. Whereas other people have found um, a great deal of, of comfort in almost the opposite theological view, the idea that some of these things happen because God doesn't want them to happen, uh, that they happen because of a variety of physical accident or because God has given a tremendous amount of free will to creatures who then make their own decisions and that these don't always reflect God's will or God's ways in the world. Um, there are a few ways that psychologists have studied that have turned out to only only have uh, only cause more difficulty for those who suffer. So one of the views uh, that some people hold is that I'm suffering because God is punishing me. And uh, regardless of whether that's true or not, what we found is that in in studies that look at how people respond, that's one of the worst for having resilience in, in suffering. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very, very interesting. Uh, I mean, um, e- even for instance, uh, Islam it teaches that even the prickling of a thorn, something as small as that, um, in the way of Allah the Almighty, uh, is something which uh, which alleviates some kind of sins and washes away sins from uh, from a believer. And it's it's like you said, it's it's these uh, traditions and these um, these these uh, theological um, uh, issues within, which uh, give strength to the believers as well, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, you're working on a research program called a Compassionate Theodicy. Could you tell us a little bit about that, please? Yeah, so I did my PhD on the problem of evil. Um, and I found that the majority of the books that, that investigated the question of why there's suffering in a world created by a good God started with a caveat. They started with a warning that said, by the way, this book is not for anyone who's suffering. <laughs> this is this is a book for philosophers. It's a book for theologians, uh, but it's it's really not the kind of thing that's intended for for people who are going through suffering. And I just kept wondering, why is that so? Why why are we why are we as scholars spending our time uh, working out what's what's really become a logical game uh, played amongst professionals 
for, for hundreds of years. And so I wanted to ask, is there a way that uh, theodicy, that branch of theology that deals with why is there suffering, is there a way that we can get that answer to be part of the experience of people who are suffering? So if people suffer differently based on what they believe about God, that seems to leave an open door to me for us as theologians to come in and say, okay, let's investigate how you believe, uh, what you believe, and how that's affecting your experience. Mm -hmm. And so I started to try and work out what I called compassionate theodicy, rather than being uh, sort of a, a game played in academics. It's something that's meant to be an on-the-ground project that's helping people who are suffering think through these same questions, but in, in gentle and more accessible ways. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's very interesting. And um, it'd be good to, 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 to read up a little bit on that as well. And uh, it's, yeah, like I said, very interesting and insightful yeah. uh, thing to, to see as well. Um, thank you, uh, Dr. Soloreda, for, for, for being with us, for answering our questions uh, and, and sharing your insight uh, in regards to this very interesting topic that we're discussing today. Thank you again. And You're very welcome. Have a wonderful day. You too. Take thank care. You. you too. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. 0208-687-7878 is the number for you. That was Dr. Bethany, um, who received a PhD in theology from the University of Exeter and an MCS in interdisciplinary studies from Regent College, Vancouver. She specialises in theology concerning evolution and the problem of suffering. Her current work is about the theological possibilities and human vocation in the light of irreversible changes in ecological degradation. Uh, a very interesting um, a conversation uh, and discussion that we had um, with her, um, we'll be we'll be speaking a little bit more uh, about what uh, some of the arguments in relation to the existence of uh, Goda, such as uh, te teleological, cosmological, uh, and uh, evolution as well. So, at least if you can just begin with uh, te the teleological uh, argument, please. Yeah, sure. So <clears throat> the um, the teleological argument or proof for the existence of a deity is sometimes um, called the design argument, right? So all of the uh, sophistication and incredible detail we observe in nature uh, could not have occurred um, by chance, right? So if we, go through all, uh, if we go through this, just as a brief summary, we see that human artifacts are products of intelligent design, Right? They have a purpose. The universe resembles these human um, artifacts. Therefore, it is probable that the universe is a product of intelligent design and has a purpose. However, the universe is vastly more complex and more uh, you know, gigantic than a human artifact is. Therefore, um, as a result, we see that, you know, we can we can come to the conclusion that there is probably a powerful and vastly intelligent designer who created the universe. And this, like, in a nutshell, this is what the um, teleological argument um, is in, in, as, a, as a summary. Mm -hmm. uh, very interesting. And, and when it comes to uh, Paley's uh, tele teleological argument for the existence of God, um, he's, it says that for what can uh, be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature, namely his eternal power and deity, 
has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. And this is taken from Romans uh, chapter 1, um, verse 19 to 20. Um, we are going to be going to our next guest uh, for the show. We do have with us on the line Dr. Adil Bajwa, who is a general and colorectal, uh, colorectal surgeon working in the University Hospitals uh, Coventry and Warwickshire. Uh, he's also a co-presenter of the show Science Hour on the Voice of Islam Radio, so a regular um, a voice here on the Voice of Islam Radio station. Uh, Assalamualaikum, peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum. <clears throat> uh, Adil, we are speaking um, about a very interesting topic. Um, it is God and science, or no God and no science, um, says uh, Dr. Meyer. We have a few questions. Uh, the first being, um, you know, could you share some insights into your journey as a surgeon? and how your experiences in the field have reinforced your uh, conviction in the harmony between science and religion? Yeah, I mean, the first thing to say is, is that, you know, as someone studying, uh, you know, growing up in this country and studying science and going to university, it became quite important for me, you know, that science, it was actually science that was, you know, in some aspect is driving the agenda um, in the sense that you're you know as you know with all this knowledge you're looking at things you're understanding that there's laws of nature there's how you know the nature of you know biology the nature of you know human you know human physiology it became you know it was quite important for me for my you know religious teaching to be consistent with that um, and you know by the grace of God, I grew. You know, I was born within the MDM Muslim community, and it, you know, it's, it's abundantly clear that the, the Islamic interpretation um, by the MDM Muslim community is in harmony with science. So that you know, that's a fundamental prerequisite. Um, so it was very easy. It was very easy, and it was very faith-inspiring. That you know, when I started reading the books of the Promised Messiah. Uh, the founder of the um, the Muslim community and other scholars within the community, and in particular, there was a book by the fourth successor, Hazrat Mr. Thayyid Ahmed, Revelation, Rationality, Knowledge, and Truth, which goes in depth into science and how it sort of co-exists with religion. Um, you know, I was actually, you know, faith-inspired that what I was learning in science was consistent with the teaching teachings of my faith. And, and that's logical. It's obvious, isn't it? How can the word of God contradict, um, you know, the work of God? They have to go in harmony. Indeed, indeed. Um, just you know, uh, moving on to, um, I mean, a follow-up question would be that: uh, What advice uh, would you give to aspiring scientists um, or individuals interested in scientific research? Uh, how can they? find the supreme creator and how can science help in this pursuit well i mean all they need to do is follow the truth i mean that's what the basis of science is that's what the basis of islam is islam is the religion of truth we go through you know in, de in depth these concepts and these uh, in our program science hour you can you know by all means if you people listeners go onto the website they can find these episodes um you know they're both coming in the same direction it's about it's about the truth. So if you if you go into science, if you study science, if you go into the details, 
then it'll be quite apparent that there must be um, a creator. Now, what you won't get with science, and again, we go go into this in our show, is what you won't find in science. You won't find God manifesting Himself in that in that science. You won't get, uh, you know, the one hundred percent definitive proof. What you'll get is you'll reach a point when you think there must be, there is a design here. There must be a creator. The final step of that journey to God, you know, that's a spiritual process. That's through prayer. It's through fasting. It's through you know, moral exercises, and, you know, that in itself is how God has designed, you know, the spiritual world and the universe. But everything in science, you know, at its fundamental core will lead you to this concept that there has to be a creator. Indeed, indeed. I mean, even in the in the Holy Quran, we are all, always reminded, God Almighty always reminds uh, mankind to, you know, ponder over the creation of the universe and, um, you know, in, in, in pondering of the creation, we can find that, you know, there must be a creator. And of course, uh, the, the, uh, after coming to this stage, we obviously, like you mentioned, uh, you know, prayers and a spiritual experience is what then leads one to uh, the supreme creator. Uh, you know, the, the great thing, and you know, just for someone to, because we're in the Andean Muslim community, the great thing is you've got a scientist has no fear. You've got no fear that you're going to find something that contradicts your faith. And, you know, this is a unique place. And I'll give you one simple example. I yeah. mean, there's a lot of debate. It's a slight offshoot, but just bear with me. There's, there's a lot of debate about in, with, with the orth, Orthodox Muslim community about the death of Christ. Um, it's a very odd thing that the Orthodox community believe that the Messiah that they're waiting for is the same Jesus Christ who was on the planet, you know, 2000 years ago. Um, and, you know, someone who's grown up in a scientific environment, it's quite obvious that that's illogical. It's not scientific. It's, you know, it's just, it's almost a childish belief. You know, if you go and ask children in primary school, could, you know, could a 2000 year old man who was on, you know, on the cross come back, and, you know, he, he's been alive somewhere in the sky. He's going to come down. I don't know. It, it's supernatural. It's obviously nonsense. It's obviously nonsense. And, but, you know, it's a great blessing to be within a community where there is no, that contradiction doesn't exist. You won't find it. So, you know, a scientist is free to just explore, you know, you know, explore and find the truth. Yeah. 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 I agree. I agree. hundred percent. Um, I guess the the following question, and I think this is the last question for <clears throat> for yourself, is you have done a lot of research um, into the topic of uh, evolution. Uh, what inspired you to delve into this subject, and how has it further affirmed your faith? Well, yeah, I think it's it's, it's quite a complex subject. You do need to get into things like DNA and proteins and things like that, um, but you can think of it quite simply. I mean, the basic premise of evolution as presented by atheists is that it's a single step process. Evolution has happened by single step changes in, in DNA. And every single step has to, has to result in a survival advantage. Um, because if, if you don't get a survival advantage, then that, that change would not be chosen. Um, by natural selection. So if you study evolution and if you study systems and, you know, systems are, you know, organs are systems, you know, not, you know, your eye is not just your eye, eyeball, 
it's you know there's receptors at the back of the eyeball there's a nerve that goes from the eyeball that goes into the midbrain and then it goes into the central nervous system and then then there's nerves that come out the central nervous system that go to all you know to go to hormones go to your skin i mean so it's all connected it's one complex system with multiple multiple parts so if you just sit there and just, and just study that concept then it becomes pretty clear and obvious that if you tinker with one part of that system you know one step one deal one mutation in one part of that system then the more complex that system becomes the less and less likely one change can uh, lead to a survival advantage because if, if you tinker with something at the eyeball in order for that change to lead to a survival advantage you would need a change in the optic nerve so that you know it could pass this new signal that's been you know that's mutated in the eyeball you need a change in the midbrain to interpret that change you need a change in the central nervous system so that the organism can react to that change so it's you know it's pretty obvious in a, a sort of a logical level that evolution cannot be a single step process mm-hmm. um, so and there's, that's just one example there's other great examples there's examples of proteins you know proteins are very complex three-dimensional structures um, and there's no way for a protein to evolve into another protein in a single step process. I mean, they're so, you know, even proteins that are similar, are, you know, would need so many changes for it to get from one place to another that again, there's no model for it to be a single step process. So, I mean, you just need to study evolution and these things will become apparent. And there's plenty in the literature, lots of, you know, there's lots of scientists that, you know, are writing in, on the other side saying that you know evolution does indeed prove that there is a creator mm. you're just going to have an open and it, and it really depends i think what what angle you're coming from if you're coming from a position where you're comparing evolution to you know god has created the universe in five or six days then you know evolution's always going to win but if you're coming from it from a logical islamic perspective you know islam doesn't reject evolution um you know as muslims we believe that the process of, of evolution has occurred just as we've seen it mm. we're not rejecting the process all we're saying is that that how that has happened could not have happened in that sort of random way that atheists are presenting yeah yeah indeed indeed um thank you for joining us uh, dr adil bajava thank you for answering answering these questions um we do hope we can have you on again uh, or another show um thank you for joining us again and uh, have a lovely day and a brilliant week ahead thanks thanks for having me that was Dr. Adil Bajwa. If you did enjoy our conversation with him, you can catch more of him on the Science Hour, which is a show on the Voice of Islam radio. That is the uh, Science Hour. Awesome. Um, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas um, uh, argued uh, that all the causation and motion we observe can be tracked, uh, traced back to God, uh, who is an uncaused cause uh, or unmoved mover. So in summary... Um, and this is uh, the cosmological uh, argument for God's existence, uh, which which gets proposed that God is the ultimate explanation or, or cause of everything. Um, 
So causes and motion exist and all causation or motion requires some prior cause or motion. Things can't happen nor move for no reason. But this chain of causation or motion cannot go back infinitely. Uh, this seems impossible. Therefore, there must be a first uncaused cause or first unmoved mover. And the most plausible example of an uncaused cause or unmoved mover would, of course, be God, which therefore proves that God exists. Just quickly, I know we do have a lot to cover. The ontological argument, which are basically uh, arguments uh, for the conclusion that God exists, that are from premises which are supposed to derive from some source of uh, uh, some source other than observation of the world, for example, from reason alone. So, in other words, ontological arguments are arguments from what are typically alleged to be none but analytic, uh, a priori and, and necessary premises to the conclusion that God exists. So there's a universal belief in uh, a supreme being, so God's existence should be accepted because it is commonly uh, a commonly held belief and every nation believes in the existence of a supreme being. Uh, even some prominent atheists have uh, written that a thing which is accepted by the entire world cannot be completely wrong and so it must have some reality to it. Um, there, we've spoken about evolution with uh, Dr. Bajra. Uh, this need for a, an independent being. So the proof of this argument can be found everywhere in the world. There is nothing in the world which is uh, perfect in itself. Everything requires something else for is its existence and cannot sustain itself without them. This dependency demonstrates that the world cannot sustain itself and needs a completely independent being who can run it, which of course we believe is God. This argument also supports watchmaker theory as every watch of course has its own owner. Um, there's cause and effect, there's morality, there's complexity and design of the universe, which we touched on with Dr. Badra as well. Uh, and just lastly, uh, just because of the shortage of time, um, there's testimony as well. So something which we don't hear that much of, and so the, I'll, I'll, I'll mention it here today. Um, whatever a person believes in and whatever he accepts to be true is based on testimony and very rarely on per personal experience. And a large portion of different forms of knowledge, such as, let's say, medicine or engineering or even astronomy and so on, um, is it actually accepted based on testimony? If a large group of truthful, pious people give the testimony that they have seen a thing or found something to exist, such, then such a testimony must be accepted. And in this case, great man, men like Abraham, Moses, Jesus, David, Solomon and the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon all of them, all bear witness that God exists. Um, just quickly before we move on to the next uh, segment, um, Jalees, can you just share maybe just one or two um, scientific concepts or discoveries that have been mentioned in the Holy Quran and thus support the existence of a higher power? Because I know, um, obviously, the Holy Quran, as many of our listeners will be well aware, was uh, and is a book which was revealed almost 1500 years ago now. And it, it being revealed at that time and uh, revealing such information which we've only come to, uh, to know properly um, and formally within, let's say, the last century or so, um, is, is mind-boggling in itself and is, is completely astonishing. 
Um, so if you could share maybe just, like I said, one or two examples uh, of this for, for the benefit of our listeners, please. Yeah, indeed. I mean, like you mentioned, the Holy Quran has mentioned many things um, which we are just, which scientists now or, you know, we are just finding out the reality of um, in this day and age. For example, there is uh, there is a verse of the Holy Quran and I'll, I'll quote it before I, before I um, very briefly explain it. Uh, God Almighty says that, Verily, we created man from an extract of clay. Then we placed him as a drop of sperm in a safe uh, depository. Then we fashioned the sperm into a clot. Then, uh, then we fashioned the clot into a shapeless lump. Then we fashioned the bo- uh, bones out of this shapeless lump. Then we clothed the bones with flesh. Then we developed it into another creation. So blessed be Allah, the best of creators. Now, this knowledge was uh, only recently discovered with the progress of science. The whole, you know, uh, the, the system of how, how uh, you know, a, a child is born and the, the whole, the, the cycle that it goes through uh, in the mother's womb. However, the, uh, over 1400 years ago, the Holy Quran already described the stage-by-stage process of human development in the womb, you know, providing a clear and detailed explanation. Now, this is something that could not have been, uh, you know, uh, mentioned by a human being 1,400 years ago when there was no uh, scientific means um, to, you know, even find out the stage-by-stage process of the human development in the womb. However, 1400 years ago, we see that this was recorded in the Holy Quran. That must mean that the revealer of the Holy Quran, the 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 revealer, the 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 the, um, the revealer of the Holy Quran must have come from a from a God Almighty, because such knowledge could not have been known to human beings at that time. And you know, it's 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 fascinating that only recently. You know, science has you know evolved to such a uh, standard where we are able to confirm these things. But I mean, it's mind-boggling to know that 1,400 years ago, the Holy Prophet, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, in Arabia, he 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 knew about this. He he was it was revealed to him, and this is in the Holy Quran as well. And this is one of the uh, strongest points to to uh, affirm that yes, there is a God because um, of of this verse, and um, that the Holy Quran was revealed by God Almighty. Mm, most certainly. Um, and of course, uh, just one last thing that I would like to share before moving on to the next se- segment is the the acceptance uh, of, uh, of prayer as well. And that in itself is indeed a huge uh, proof which, uh, which, which indicates and shows that truly there is a God um, and a, a living God as well. So there's a difference between there just being a, a supreme being or a deity which uh, uh, people believe in, but rather uh, someone who actually listens and accepts prayers and talks and converses with man uh, is of course a hugely different thing as well. Um, we, we, because of uh, the shortage of time, we don't, um, we can't actually get into this in too much detail. Um, but of course, we have done uh, shows on this before as well. Um, and uh, of course, you you can go back and listen back to them uh, on our SoundCloud on our website, uh, www.voiceofislam.org.uk. 
And of course, you can read up on it on uh, alislam.org as well, uh, which is our website, free of uh, of uh, of of charge, no cost uh, involved in that, no subscriptions, nothing uh, in the least. And so, if you would like to uh, read up more on that, then of course you can do so. Um, moving on to the second segment for the day, the Sandman effect: How dreams influence work productivity. So. New research uh, by the University of Notre Dame reveals that about 40% of the working population recalls their dreams each morning before heading to work. This study titled A Spillover Model um, of Dreams and Work Behavior, How Dream Meaning uh, Ascription Promotes or an Employee Resilience, discusses how connecting dreams to real-life experiences can significantly impact individuals' thoughts, emotions, and actions at work. The research emphasizes that this connection fosters a sense of awe, which, similar to uh, epiphanies, epiphanies, uh, um, help individuals navigate work stress, enhancing resilience and productivity. Um, And so in this segment, we'll be delving deeper into the study uh, and exploring the phenomenon of dreams. Um, the first thing that we want to, uh, uh, of course, uh, address is what this uh, topic actually, uh, uh, the article, um, what it actually is. And so the re- new research from the University of Notre Dame, um, uh, like mentioned, sh- shows how people often draw connections between their dreams and their waking lives. And the connections that they draw alter how they think, feel and act at work. The team performed three studies that collectively captured approximately 5,000 morning of reports um, of dream recalling among full-time employees. The study shows that dreams rarely related to work, however, can still set the stage for the rest of our day. A good dream will affect your day uh, differently than a bad dream because humans mysteriously make connections with emotions they experience in dreams and it can affect their day-to-day life as well. Indeed. Um, when, When it comes to what are dreams and why do we experience them well i mean first and foremost we have to uh, understand that dreams are a universal uh, dreams are a universal human experience that can be described as a state of consciousness characterized by sensory cognitive and emotional occurrences during sleep you know, again dreams can have um, at any time uh, during uh, can happen at any time during sleep but you have your most vivid dreams um, during a phase called uh, REM, which is you know rapid eye movement, REM sleep, um, when your brain is most active. We may not uh, remember dreaming, but everyone is thought to dream between three and six uh, times per night. It is thought that each dream lasts between five to 20 minutes. Around 95% of dreams, um, it is said, are forgotten by the time a person you know, gets out of bed. And you know it, it's, it's also that dreaming can help you learn and develop long uh, term long term memories um you know more on this we do, we do have a a uh, guest uh, with us uh, professor uh, mark and um, professor mark is a professor of um, psychology at swansea university and was a past president of the international association for the study of dreams um he is also the author of the book the science and art of dreaming uh, Prof- Professor Mark, uh, Assalamu alaikum. 
peace be upon you and welcome to the breakfast show well thank you very much for having me it's very good of you to invite me oh, th- thank you very much for joining us um we're discussing a very important uh, you know topic is h- how dreams influence work productivity and um you know getting straight into it the first question would be um you know could you give us an introduction to the the biological uh, you know the uh, psychological and social causes of uh, dreaming yes um i i can as as you've just said during the night we go into something called rapid eye movement sleep where your brain rather than having big uh brain waves which show that you are very deeply asleep your brain becomes as if it's awake again the the uh, the um, brain waves look a little bit like you're awake and your eyes are moving very rapidly mm. um, in bursts. And you're much more likely to recall a dream if you're woken up from that period. So about 80% of the time in the sleep lab, if we find someone's gone into their rapid eye movement sleep, we'll get a dream report from them. If they're in non-rapid eye movement sleep, uh, which can be light sleep or a deep sleep, then it's about 50% we get, we get the um, dream report from them. So we, we study them all night in the sleep lab. People will be going into REM and non-REM sleep and we wake them up and we, we get their dreams from the different um, from the different sleep stages. I see, I see. And um, how do dreams have a strong connection um, with our memory and emotion? And yes. Yes, that's, yeah. a very, that's a very interesting question. You see, as, you, as you've just said, um, in, in the introduction, we absolutely know scientifically that the brain helps to form our memories during the night and that uh, sleep helps to form our memories during the night. We, we know that and we know lots about the different stages of sleep and what they can do with our memories. Now, at the same time as we're having these, this processing going on, and we're also having dreams. And the dreams are often quite emotional, and the dreams often refer to important things that have just happened to us. Now, for that reason, some researchers say, well, the dream is related to what the brain is doing during the night for your memories, right? Mm -hmm. That's what some researchers say, Mm -hmm. and they've got some evidence for that. But other researchers say, no, the, the dream is just happening at the same time. It doesn't do anything for this processing. You're, it's as if you're daydreaming while you're, the brain is doing something important. So there's a big debate, as there often is in science, between people who think the dreams are doing something in your sleep for you and other people who say, no, they're not. They may be meaningful or um, as, we, as, we've, as we, we're talking about for, for one's own productivity, they may have a beneficial effect on us if we remember them, but they don't actually do something for us when we're asleep. So it, it's just a very interesting debate um, going on at the moment. I see, I see. And um, in light of your book, The Science and mm. Art of Dreaming, um, you discuss the uh, the neuroscience and the psychology of dreams uh, mm. relationship to waking life events and, you know, concerns of the dreamer. Um, yes. you know, why are dreams often linked with uh, various contexts of reality um, around us? Yes. Often when you wake up and you think about the dream that you've had, you will you will think of something that happened in the previous day or in the days before that that 
may have caused that content of the dream. It's not that the dream copies what was in waking life or copies an event. The dream may refer to an event. So, for example, if, if you've had an argument with a partner, you may have a dream of standing with them on a, on a hot volcano, you know, and, uh, and, and everything's steamy and unpleasant and, uh, and, and physically sort of hot and boiling. And so you may have a metaphorical dream like that. And there's three main explanations for, the, for this. You know, as, as, I've, as I've said, it could just be that, you know, that was on your mind the previous day and you, you have a, this sort of very uh, vivid daydream about it. Well, that's what a dream is. Or it could be you're trying to process in the night how you're feeling about someone or feeling about an event. And therefore, that's why you are dreaming of it. The other option, the other possibility is the one we put forward in our book, which is that during the night you're producing fiction. You know, and fiction can be very important for people to find out about other possibilities. Say, you know, if you see a film or you see a, a, a fictional book, it can tell you about possibilities. It tells you about the world. And one possibility is during the night we are having dreams with the aim that the final one of the night possibly you tell to other people and it bonds you with other people. And so when we've done experiments at Swansea University on this, when people tell a dream to somebody else, that other person's empathy towards you increases. Their, their, their understanding of your life increases. And we do put forward the possibility that in, in you know, society at the moment, there can be a decrease in empathy going on between people. And maybe if people were sharing their dreams with each other more and doing it respectfully and chatting about their dreams to each other and how it relates to their life, that could increase people's empathy towards each other. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's a very, very interesting um, mm, yes. uh, subject. I mean, I, 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 personally, I, I can... You know, uh, talk about this and listen, listen uh, yes. to this like, all day. Um, but, but of course, you know, we we do we do have a, a, um, a, a we are we are racing against the time. Um, yes. You know, thank you for uh, joining us, and uh, I hope we can have you on again, um, maybe later on, uh, maybe later during uh, another uh, show of ours. Um, thank you for joining us, and a yes. lovely, no, lovely that... day ahead. Yes, and and to you and to all your listeners, and it'd be great to be back on the program with you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. We look forward to it. That was Professor Mark. Uh, he is uh, the author of the book The Science and the Art of Dreaming. Mm, a very interesting uh, conversation over there. Um, if we, an, another interesting thing actually is uh, blind people. Um, they dream more with other sensory components compared with sighted people. Uh, so just another interesting fact um, to top off um, the, the, the facts that we were speaking about before. Um, in the Holy Quran, chapter 12, verse 102, it states, O oh my Lord, thou hast bestowed power upon me and taught me the interpretation of dreams. O maker of the heavens and the earth, thou art my protector in this world and the hereafter. Let death come to me in a state of submission to thy, to thy will and join me to the righteous. Uh, the promised Messiah, upon whom be peace, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, he writes that the world of dreams is in a manner like the world to come. The wonders that nature has sealed up in the dreamland and the mysteries therein and the manner in which these spiritual phenomena appear are similar to that of the hereafter. 
one might say that the dreamland is a kind of reflection or a photograph of the world yet to come. That is the reason why death and dreams have been spoken of as real sisters, alike in their features, appearance, components and integral parts. The only way to have a glimpse of, at the secrets uh, of the world to come without the aid of inspiration <clears throat> and revelation is this source, the world of dreams. So this is a very interesting um, uh, thing which uh, the, whole, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community has mentioned in regards to dreams. Um, we do have with us uh, on the line our next guest uh, for the show, uh, Dr. Aristia Ladas, uh, who's an assistant professor and research associate um, at the University of York. Her main research interest lies in explaining the process of dreaming from an interdisciplinary perspective, such as from a neuroscientific, cognitive and philosophical viewpoint. She is also interested in psychological responses to the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as neuroplasticity and uh, um, dopaminergic uh, me- mechanisms of uh, effect and behavior. Assalamualaikum, peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to the breakfast show. Good morning. Good, and thank you for being with us. Um, you, of course, uh, use an interdisciplinary method when researching the process of dreaming, isn't it? So, what is the science behind dreams, and why is it beneficial to approach this topic from, let's say, a neuroscientific, cognitive, and philosophical uh, perspective? Thank you for that question. Uh, The truth is that um, dreams is a topic that is very intriguing for everyone ever since humans uh, stepped a foot on Earth. Um, uh, Dreams offer very useful functions for our lives, for our well-being, and so there comes science to investigate how is that done. First of all, what are dreams? So currently we do not have a machine to depict the dreams that we're watching. So we need to use other objective measures um, to assess that very weird and miraculous thing that's called dreams. Uh, Neuroscientific methods can answer the question of where do dreams occur in the brain. Uh, So uh, activation of certain brain regions while we're dreaming uh, can be uncovered with the neuroscientific methods. Uh, Then we have uh, the contribution of cognitive psychology to explain what are these brain centers about. So what cognitive functions lie there and which cognitive functions lie on the other place that was activated during dreaming, which have offered us an answer to what is um, involved in dreaming, what cognitive functions such as emotions, such as a lower uh, stress response and so forth. And then we have philosophy to answer the why, because a neuroscientific and cognitive experimental evidence are fine. However, if we do not have a logic, a theory behind those brain-activated areas and the cognitive functions that, these, uh, that emerge from them, then what's the reason to investigate them? Mm-hmm. Uh, we strongly believe uh, that philosophy, is the, which is the mother of all sciences, can answer the question of why. Why are we dreaming and how come? And then we can derive assumptions, predictions that could be falsified or verified through uh, our neuroscientific and cognitive experimental methods. So we believe that such a combination offers a holistic uh, investigation of dreaming and sleeping and consciousness, if you wish. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, very, very beautifully uh, uh, mentioned and summarized. Uh, basically, this, 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 this whole topic of of uh, dreaming. Um, we we do have maybe one or two more questions that we want to ask you. Um, the, the the subjective experiences influence uh, our dreams and other such things. Um, but unfortunately, we the we uh, the the news is coming up. So if you could just hold on uh, just for two minutes, uh, mm-hmm. and we'll have you on straight after the eight o'clock news. Yes, certainly. Mm-hmm. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording. And lines are now closed. Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Uh, welcome back to the breakfast show here on the Voice of Islam radio station. Uh, just a quick time check for you. It is two minutes past eight on Tuesday, the twenty sixth of September, twenty twenty three. Um, if you are just tuning in, um, then we in the first segment we were speaking about God and science, or no God and no science, as uh, says Dr. Mayan. We were discussing that thoroughly. Um, in this segment, we're speaking about the Sandman effect and how dreams influence influence work productivity and last but not least uh, towards the end of the show we will be speaking about in unity we remember um, as it is world alzheimer's awareness month um, we are speaking with one of our esteemed guests dr risti aladas um, who is an assistant professor and research associate at the university of york um, assalamualaikum um, and welcome back uh, to the breakfast show Hi, hi, hi there. Uh, thank you for 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 staying on hold over the news. Um, the next question that I wanted to ask you, just carry on carrying on with the discussion that we were having. As a psychologist, would you argue that dreams are produced at random, or is there a realm of spirituality involved? And and also, do do our subjective experiences influence our dreams? Thank you for that very interesting question. Actually, there have been several uh, theories about dreaming throughout the years, ever since the ancient uh, philosophers start uh, started uh, discussing about dreams. Um, one of the most that used to be one of the most prominent theories in the neuroscientific field would be the the theory uh, explaining dreams as a random activation of brain centers and due to the inherent need of the brain to form meaning, uh, then we have the storytelling of dreams. However, uh, nowadays we do believe that dreams share much more information and value than that. So we do have brain activity while dreaming, actually. The brain, uh, while uh, having vivid dreams in the REM phase of dreaming, is almost like being awake, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. And uh, this means that uh, the, 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 the stories that we view during dreams are not random stories. They must have been influenced by our experiences. Uh, we have um, Tom Stoneham uh, from the Department of Philosophy of the University of York, who has um, developed a very interesting model of dreams called the cultural social model of dreams, which in essence supports that um, dreams are just a confabulation of perception during dreaming where you do not have actual perception like while awake you have that so we could call it the interoception that you have during dreaming uh, which is framed when you are explaining that dream by your by the cultural norms which means in turn that social and cultural factors definitely determine the dream content because 
if you ask a uh, so-called expert on, uh, of dreams to explain your dream to you, maybe the explanation that you get does not match that well with what you're feeling the dream meant. Mm-hmm. But if you yourself try to explain that dream, then a whole lot of meaning is automatically produced, as studies show. So that means that we are the best explanators of our dreams and our perception is inherently influenced by our cultural norms, by our everyday lives. So this means that um, our subjective experiences indeed influence our dreams. Mm-hmm. Very, very interesting to, to, to say the least. Um, just lastly, there, uh, Dr. Ladas, we want to ask you if you can kindly explain in what way dreams can influence our emotional and spiritual state as well. Uh, Thank you for that question. Well, the truth is, as studies show, uh, that emotions and spirituality, uh, that is, dreams and spiritual experiences have a lot in common. such as, for example, that both dreams and spiritual experiences lead to new forms of knowing that is tied to feelings, both use a metaphorical language. Uh, Emotions are an integral part of both the spiritual life and dreaming, and uh, they both can lead to insight and inner awareness. Uh, So um, also healing which is offered by that insight most usually, can be offered by both dreams and spiritual experiences. By seeing this pattern, uh, no one can, can question the relationship that exists between dreaming and spiritual experiences. Others could argue that these are quite com- um, they could be the same, actually. We could call, we could call dreams as spiritual experiences. So uh, our emotional Uh, state is definitely influenced by our dreams. There is a series of very interesting studies on uh, uh, patients with depression and post-traumatic stress disorder that shows that if while dreaming, you're dreaming of the traumatic event because that traumatic event takes place in the dreaming brain where the stress hormone is very low mm. while you're dreaming, so in a safe environment that is, mm. you re-experience that event and you give a different meaning to that event, which helps you actually uh, to, uh, to recur uh, from uh, the, either depression or post-traumatic stress disorder earlier than patients who did not dream about the traumatic event at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's, it's very interesting, isn't it? This realm of uh, of dreaming and how much you can unveil uh, through this this the, this world. It's, it's it's such a fascinating topic, and uh, literally we can speak about this for hours on end. Um, but unfortunately, time has gotten the better of us. Yes. Uh, Doctor Ladas, uh, thank you once again for for being with us, and we hope you have a wonderful day ahead as well. Oh, thank you, thank you for giving me this opportunity. You're thank you. Have welcome. a good day. Likewise, thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number for you. That was uh, Dr. Aristia Ladas, who is an assistant professor and research associate at the University of York. Um, her main research interest lies in explaining the process of dreaming from an interdisciplinary perspective, uh, such as uh, from uh, from from a neuroscientific, cognitive, and philosophical uh, viewpoint. And she was sharing her thoughts uh, with us in in, in this regard. Um, <clears throat> 
the the psychological uh, the, the physiological and neurological mechanisms behind dreaming uh, so basically the science behind dreaming and we've uh, sort of touched on this as well um the two major theories have been proposed regarding the neural uh, circuits involving in, involved in dreaming one is that dreams are inge- generated by the activation of neural activity in the brain stem and its uh, signal transmission to the cortex and the other is uh, that dreams are caused by forebrain activation by dopamine uh, whereas the physiological functions of dreams remains unclear several hypotheses have been proposed that are associated with memory and emotions and dreaming is a strange a physiological phenomenon uh, research has demonstrated that dreaming is closely associated with uh, rapid eye movement rem sleep um it is known uh, that dreaming also occurs during non rem sleep um uh, uh, but uh, the content appears to be different and dreams during uh, rem sleep tend to be longer more vivid more story like and more bizarre than those during um non rem sleep We do have with us uh, Professor Kate Adams. Uh, professor Kate Adam, Adams is a uh, professor of education at Leeds Trinity University, UK. She taught in primary schools for nearly a decade prior to moving into academia. She, lear- she earned her PhD from the University of Glasgow, which explored, <coughs> excuse me, which explored children's religious and or spiritual dreams. talking to 7 to 12 year olds from christian muslim and secular backgrounds her subsequent research has explored other aspects of children's spirituality and childhood and their implications for education kate seeks to represent the ch- uh, children's perspectives she has published widely for over two decades through research papers professional articles and books which include unseen worlds looking through the lens of childhood and the spiritual dimension of childhood. Uh Professor Kate, peace be upon you and welcome to the breakfast show. Good morning and thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you very much for for uh joining us. Um we are discussing a very interesting topic. Um and uh, we have we have a few questions that we would like to ask. Uh, the first being is that in your research, uh you've explored the concept of uh childhood spirituality uh could you provide a brief overview of what childhood spirituality entails and why it's important to study it uh yes of course um i mean first of all there's, there's no agreed definition as as such um some people for example argue that we we cannot understand spirituality without religion whilst other people say that we can be spiritual but not religious but but that said um there are generally agreed themes that um we explore in children's spirituality and and those relate uh, firstly to relationality which is our relationship with ourselves our relationship with others our relationship with the world and the, the planet and for some people um a relationship with the transcendent um and themes that are linked to that, that that we all agree on um involve spirituality are about our identity belonging connectedness and that search for meaning and purpose in life so um why why is it important well certainly in the context of western countries we we're seeing really worrying 
levels, um, increases in poor mental health and well-being for, for young people. And I, th I think one, one of the difficulties in the West is where we have a, a more du dualist understanding of mind and body. But what's missing is, is the spirit, the mind-body-spirit connection, the, the, the kind of what we call the whole child or the whole person. So that's linked um, very much to a search for meaning and purpose, which um, children have um, innately. Um, and finally, spiritual experiences in childhood are quite common, and some of those can be very profound, and they can shape a child's worldview, um, whether it's religious or not, uh, for a lifetime. So it's really important to recognise that and study the area. I see, I see. And um, could you share some key findings or insights um, from your research and how children experience and express their spirituality and dreams? And, um, you know, what impact do these encounters have on them? Uh, yes, so, so my research um, with Christian, Muslim and secular children aged 7 to 12, and we, we looked at dreams that they believed had some spiritual or uh, religious connection. And one-fifth of children... Uh, said that they'd had one of these kind of dreams in their uh, time, but around a third had never told anyone. Um, and that was really for fear of ridicule or, or dismissal. Um, and, but despite the fact they hadn't really shared with, with anyone, the, these were often very meaningful uh, dreams, um, uh, as I say, with, with some perceived divine connection and that went across all all of the um children's uh irrespective of their background and one of the things i thought was um very interesting was that many of the children did not come from homes where dreams were discussed uh so it was very much that they had an intuition about these dreams that they they said there was something different uh, about them to their normal dreams, which stood out. And the children had um, intuited uh, a message um, in those. So in, in terms of impact, uh, I, I mean, it, it is, it's of course fair to say that for some of the children, it was just an interesting dream that they had reflected on, um, but didn't have a particular impact. Yet for others, it was um, very, very meaningful. So uh, there were examples of, of dreams where children changed their behaviour uh, as a result. Uh, so, so one girl wanted to go and help homeless people um, who, who she saw in, in the street because her, her dream had given her some guidance and some compassion that she needed to, to help others. And, and another boy who admitted to being a bully at school and fighting other children stopped that that aggressive behaviour as a result of a dream that he, he thought had um, a divine message um, to to stop that. Oh wow! Um, yeah, it, it was it was really fascinating to to hear their their insights. Um, and another theme was was that. Some children felt they were being protected uh, by God or Allah. Um, what one girl 
described how she was being bullied at school, but the the bullies suddenly stopped um, pitting on her after her dream. Um, a, a, another child had had a dream where he thought um, he was being given advice to prevent an accident on, on his bike and he, he took that advice in real life and um, avoided uh, crashing crashing his bike into a tree as, as a result, uh, which he said was um, from God's protection. And uh, a, a final example here, um, there were many dreams of reassurance. So children have been worried about something um, and then, then the dream gave them reassurance that, that uh, God was looking after them and everything would be, would be well. And, and there were several accounts as well of um, children talking to a loved one who, who had died. And again, that gave them reassurance that, that their loved one was, was still alive, albeit in, in a different spiritual realm. I see, I see. I mean, uh, I mean, all of this that you mentioned is really interesting. Um, you know, the, the follow-up question would be: Is it's you know it's fascinating that children ask uh, you know ultimate questions about life and uh, death? Um, your research involves looking at these experiences through different um, disciplinary perspectives. Uh, could you explain how you know psychology, theology, and other disciplines uh, contribute to the um, comprehensive understanding of uh, children's encounters with the divine and their their questions about life and death yes absolutely and and we we see children from a very young age asking these uh questions um so if i take a take an example of um a, a dream that a child relates to the divine um at for example, a, a, child, a child who's dreamt of someone who's died. Um, we can see this through, through quite a number of lenses, and I think it's important to bear all of them in mind before we make our, our own decisions of how you would explain that dream. So, uh, as you've mentioned, a neuroscientist will be talking about um, the random firing of, of neurons. But if we talk to a psychoanalyst, um, they would have a different view that they would they would talk about the symbols in, in the dream. And they, they would say that the symbols are, are not accidents. Um, they, they all have meaning. A bereavement psychologist uh, would look upon a, a dream of the deceased as representing the stages of grief that uh, they believe we go through in waking life that's also mirrored in dreams. That it has been claimed that religion is, was actually the original field of, of dream research. Uh, we know from studies of ancient religions, for example, in ancient Greece, ancient China, ancient Rome, that um, they built dream incubation temples where people could go and perform rituals um, and, and pray for the gods to give them answers in their dreams. So religion and dreams have a very, very long history. And we also see those in the scriptures of living religions today as, as dreams as being a means of communication uh, between humans and the divine. And anthropology, I think, is a really, really important discipline because anthropology gives us different cultural perspectives and particularly indigenous voices 
and many indigenous communities um, believe again that dreams have this connection to um, other other spiritual dimensions. And finally, I think um, it's also very important to listen to the dreamers' perceptions. Obviously, they they will have some influence of their own culture, but whether whether that dreamer is a child or an adult, it's really important um, to understand their perception of of the dream as well. Mm. Indeed, indeed, it's interesting. I mean, it's interesting that you um, that uh, that um, every, every, that what you've mentioned. Um, you know, just lastly, um, the question, which uh, last question um, is, you know, how has the field of uh, children's spirituality and um, connection with dreams evolved over time, and what key milestones or developments have shaped our current understanding of uh, this area? Yes, I mean, his, historically, and I, th- I think still today, the, the majority of studies around spirituality and dreams are very, very much focused on adults, and, and children, I think, have been very much um, underrepresented. Um, the psychoanalyst Carl Jung alerted us to big dreams, um, that, dreams that have a, a particular profound impact and he did highlight that um, they, they occurred in childhood. Um, in, the, in the early 90s, um, Edward Hoffman, who did a study uh, called The Visions of Innocence, he highlighted children's dreams as spiritual experiences. Um, and there's a, a lovely study in 1990 by um, an American uh, psychiatrist, Robert Coles, who talked to six to 13-year-olds um, from different faith backgrounds. Uh, and the children he found um, talked about dreams uh, very much. Um, more recently, um, my American colleagues, Kelly and Patricia Bulkley, ha- have looked at children's most memorable dreams. And I think these studies, are, as, well, as well as my own, that include talking to children, have, have given us insight. And, um, you know, we, we can really understand that these are often very important experiences for children, but we also know that they're hidden, that children don't talk about them very much because they think um, pe- people might not believe them or, or they, might, they might be crazy. Um, but I, I think overall, although we need a lot more research into this, I think we know enough that this is a very important historical phenomenon and um, for children, it, it can shape their worldview. Yep, interesting, interesting. Um, uh, Professor Kate Adams, thank you for joining us, and thank you for answering our questions. Uh, it has been uh, very informative. Um, we do hope to have you on, um, maybe on another show again in the future. Um, until then, um, have a lovely day and a beautiful week ahead. That's lovely. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> thank you very much. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number for you to call. Um, common themes or symbols in dreams uh, across cultures and religions. So, all major religions view dreams with a great deal of regard and mindfulness. And uh, there are many biblical examples of God communicating with people through dreams, often indirectly. Joseph, for instance, was highly regarded as an interpreter. Uh, for dreams uh, and eventually became an advisor to the Egyptian pharaoh after being sold as a slave to in uh, to, to Egypt. Uh, the Prophet Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, began having prophetic dreams in his teenage years leading up to his first revelation. 
St. Augustine, one of the most important figures in Christianity, had high regard for the value of dreams and dream interpretation. Um, and dreams often uh, are, are symbolic and contain coded information. Um, typical dreams are defined as dreams similar to those reported by a high percentage of dreamers. Um, and up to now, the frequencies of typical dreams themes um, have been studied with uh, with questionnaires. And these have been indicated uh, that a rank order of 55 typical dreams themes, dream themes have um, been stable over different sample populations. Uh, and some of the themes are being chased or pursued, school, teachers and studying, fooling, uh, arriving too late, a living person being dead, <clears throat> A person now dead being alive, um, flying or soaring through the air, failing an uh, examination, being um, on the verge of falling and being frozen with fright. Um, just we, we will be summing up uh, in just a short while. But before we do so, we do have with us on the line our last guest for this segment, Joe Griffin, uh, who is a psychologist and the co-founder of the Human Givens Approach. Additionally, he is also a researcher and uh, the psychotherapy diploma tutor for the Human Givens College. He is also the co-author with uh, Ivan Tyrell um, of numerous books and publications, including Why We Dream, The Definitive Answer, which explains why dreaming and daydreaming are crucial to human development and why stories and metaphors have universal appeal. Assalamualaikum, peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show, Joe. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. And likewise, we are very delighted to have you on with us. Um, Joe, as a co-developer, uh, could you please explain to our listeners what the human givens approach is, please? Well, we all know we have physical needs, like a need for water, food, clothing, warmth, uh, place to live, etc. But we also have emotional needs, and they are just as vital to our well-being as our physical needs. And the Human Givens approach sees the failure to get these needs met as actually being the cause of mental illness. And so the Human Givens approach seeks to remove the barriers that are preventing people from getting these key emotional needs met, and thus it restores them to full mental health in the fastest possible time. Mm-hmm. Um, in your book, uh, Why We Dream, The Definitive Answer, what did you discover about the connection between emotions and dreams, and how do dreams improve mental health as well? Well, interestingly, whilst dreams are absolutely vital to our <laughs> mental health, if the dreaming mechanism goes wrong, it can actually be the cause of mental illness. But mm. firstly, let me explain why they are vital. We all dream, even though we don't recall it very often, every night for approximately two hours. Yeah. Now, what dreaming is doing for us is, is actually restoring emotional balance in the brain. And how this works is quite simply this, that during our waking day, at various points, we can get emotionally aroused, have emotional impulses, <laughs> that for better or worse, we cannot express. Perhaps, perhaps we have an impulse to tell our boss off and tell him he's being unreasonable, but our, uh, our, our logical mind tells us, not a good idea, please put that on hold. Mm. So we may have lots of emotional impulses, which for various reasons we couldn't act out. And in our dreams at nighttime, those emotional impulses are acted out. The body is put on... It's, put, it's taken offline, as it were, because it's actually paralyzed so that we don't act out our dreams. And then we have dreams in which we act out these suppressed emotional impulses. 
Now, interestingly, they have to be expressed in metaphor or pattern matching, because otherwise we might confuse our dreams with waking reality. So by acting out these suppressed impulses, we free up the brain and its, and its ability to process information the next day. We, 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 we do, as it were, start with a clean emotional state the next day by expressing offline these suppressed emotional impulses. So that's very, very important to our mental health. If, we, if, if for, for some reason we can't do our quota of dreaming, we're much more aroused and much more under stress that day because we didn't have our dreaming mechanism. Mm. But on the other hand, it can go disastrously wrong if we do too much emotional arousal during the day and we do too much emotional worrying about stuff that we can't sort out. That can actually lead to an overload of dreams. And if that overload of dreams were to continue for a certain length of time, it can actually trigger clinical depression. It can actually exhaust the brain. I mean, that's, that's, that's very interesting, isn't it? I mean, it, it just goes to show that pondering about dreams uh, can lead to better mental health and deeper understanding of who we actually are. But too much of this uh, can actually have a negative uh, and an adverse effect, isn't it? All things in balance, I guess, as the old maxim says. Yeah, yeah, no, no, definitely, definitely. And um, Joe, within the scientific community, there are differing opinions on the causes of dreams. As a believer that dreams are not pr- produced arbitrarily, <clears throat> sorry, could you, <clears throat> excuse me, could you please uh, shed some light uh, on, on this debate, please? At one point, uh, back back at, uh, before the beginning, before the beginning of this century, that there was a, a prevalent view that dreams were just nonsense. Mm-hmm. But in recent decades, researchers from all around the world have reached a consensus that dreams are meaningful, that dreams do relate to what happened in our lives the previous day, stuff that we got emotional about. There's also a consensus that dreams are doing something very worthwhile, that they're aiding memory, and that they're helping us to process emotions. But there, as yet the consensus, whilst it's gone a long way towards the view I have expressed, it hasn't completed that journey, which is to see the specific function that dreams are doing for us, which, which is discharging suppressed emotions. We can get emotional about stuff, but if we deal with it, that doesn't become dreams. It's the stuff that we don't deal with that become dreams. Mm. But if I could also add this, if you, if you wouldn't mind, please, that... Recalling our dreams and looking at them can be beneficial in, in, in many ways that you might not think of. For example, there's massive evidence to show that people who recall their dreams got wonderful uh, creative inspirations from mm-hmm. them. And that's a good reason. I mean, a famous example based upon a, an inventor in London that I often think about with amusement it goes back to 1846. There was an inventor in London called Elias Howe. And he was working trying to develop an automatic sewing machine. It was desperately needed, especially by women, to save them hours of drudgery. But he just couldn't solve a technical problem he had. And on the night, the day before, he he dreamt a solution. His creditors came banging on his door in Hammersmith, wanting to take him off the debtor's prison for non-payment of his debts. Mm -hmm. And that night, he had a dream in which he was surrounded by savages in the jungle, and they were tied him to a pole, and they were coming at him with spears, and he was about to be killed. And at that moment, he noticed that the point of the spears all had a hole in them. And he woke up. He said, I know how to make the automatic sewing machine. What I've got to do is put the hole near the point of the needle, and that way the needle can be stabilized in the machine. And thus women were saved hundreds of hours of drudgery by the invention of a solution that came from a dream. But 
we all can get solutions from time to time to our problems and dreams if we pay attention to them. Yeah, no, no, definitely. I mean, we we, we, we believe as Muslims that this is a, a way of communication and communion as well um, from, from God Almighty in which he can uh, express things to us and explain things to us um, in an easy manner for, for us to understand as well. Um, so that, yeah. that is so right. Because my, what my research shows is that we can be getting inspirations and thoughts that are coming from our higher self, from God. And if our ego is not receptive to it, those insights can be expressed via metaphors mm-hmm. in dreams. Mm-hmm. So that's another reason why paying attention to dreams is worthwhile. Yeah, no, no, definitely, definitely. And this is actually a skill uh, which uh, the Promised Messiah, upon whom is the founder of, his, uh, of the Ahmadiyya Muslim uh, movement, has, has said that we should all uh, sort of dabble into this uh, and learn as much as uh, of this as we can, so that when, whenever we do have dreams and whenever we can recall them, we can actually um, make proper use of that information which is being shared with us as well. Joe, uh, it was absolutely wonderful speaking with you, and, and like I said, earlier as well um, this is a topic which we can speak on uh, at length uh, but unfortunately time has gotten the better of us um, if we ever do uh, another show on this uh, we'd love to have you on uh, again and until then uh, thank you and we hope you have a wonderful day and week ahead thank you very much indeed you're very welcome thank you bye bye Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number for you. That was Joe Griffin, who's a psychologist and the co-founder of the Human Givens Approach. Uh, additionally, he's also a researcher and the psychotherapy du- diploma tutor for, for the Human Givens uh, College. Indeed, <coughs> um, you're right. You're right there. <laughs> yeah, I was. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's a it's a very interesting topic. I mean, um, speaking about dreams, we do. I I, I when I was doing research uh, on this topic, I did find some um, narrations uh, of the Holy Prophet, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, in which he said that uh, where he, he talked about interpretation of dreams, and he said that uh, you know a, a good dream is um, from Allah, and a you know a bad dream is from Satan. And when when a person does see a bad dream, he should seek Allah's uh, refuge and. He, uh, when we study the history of Islam, we know that even the call of prayer um, was, uh, you know, taught to, you know, the companions of the Holy Prophet. And, you know, there's uh, there's two, uh, um, uh, Hazrat Umar, who later went on to become the uh, second uh, Khalifa. He was, you know, he saw in a dream the the call to prayer, and from then, uh, when they met, when they spoke about this to the Holy Prophet, he then uh, said that, you know, yes, they, they have seen a true dream and from now on, the call of prayer will be, um, as it was taught to them, it will be um, called out uh, like that. And there is another hadith where, you know, it's an example of how the Holy Prophet would interpret dreams. Um, the narrator said that he he, he he says that he heard the, the Holy Prophet uh, say that while, um, the Holy Prophet says that while I was sleeping, I was given a bowl full of milk in a dream um, and I drank from it until I noticed it wetness come out from my nails, right? This is all, he sees this all in a dream. Then I gave the remainder to Umar, right? The people asked, what does this dream mean? Um, they asked the Holy Prophet, what does this dream mean? And, you know, uh, the, the Holy Prophet interpreted this, interpreted this dream um, and he said that it symbolizes religious knowledge. Um, you know, just one more, um, one more hadith that I, I did read, narration of the Holy Prophet, where um, the narrator says that I um, I listened to the Prophet of Allah uh, narrate that 
during, and this is the Holy Prophet saying that during my sleep, I beheld in a vision, right? Uh, the Holy Prophet says, that, uh, in which people were presented before me, wearing shirts of uh, very uh, varying lengths, some barely covering their chest, while others extended lower. Then I saw Umar bin al-Khattab, and he was wearing a shirt that trailed behind him. Then people inquired from the Holy Prophet that, you know, what is the interpretation of this dream? And, you know, the Holy Prophet uh, said that it symbolizes the essence of religion. So throughout the history of Islam, throughout the, 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 in the hadith that we have, we, we see uh, various dreams the Holy Prophet had seen and various companions had, companions had seen. And the Holy Prophet had interpreted these dreams. So um, from this, we can see that the link between dreams in Islam is is it's it's a very close link, and um, you know, like like our previous um, uh, caller mentioned as well, um, you know, that dreams are play a very uh, important role, and you know, it's important, um, like Summer you said as well, that uh, um, the Promised Messiah also said that we should you know uh, delve into this and dive into this a bit as well. Hmm. I mean, it it actually forms the bedrock of many accounts and events found in the Islamic history, like you mentioned, and and, and many more as well. Um, we we mentioned uh, this article, the Sandman effect, and how dreams influence work productivity. Um, as we can see from the conversations and discussions that we've had with our guests and between ourselves as well, um, this is such a phenomena that uh, that it def- definitely has some kind of an effect on us, whether it be uh, spiritual or, or or in any other way as well. Um, but uh, as proven uh, in the introduction of this uh, this uh, this uh, segment as well, um, it shows that forty percent of the working population recalls their dreams each morning before heading to work, and this actually has a spillover effect, uh, uh, and it, it affects how they work as well. And something so small as to which they maybe don't even recall, or something which they don't even remember, um, a, a dream that they've had throughout the course of the night, um, but it has an effect on them and, and their work productivity um, this this uh, well it reminds me to give a reminder to to our listeners that um, even smiling uh, the Holy Prophet Muhammad may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him said that this is a form of charity as well even smiling something so small as smiling it can have an effect on uh, uh, an individual so whenever we're going to our workplaces whenever we're doing anything um, then someone might have already been having a bad day and that smile smile can change their their outlook and their perspective for the rest of the day so just as this dream which may seem insignificant to some or to many even um a smile which also which may seem insignificant can go a long way uh, and i just wanted to 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 throw that in there uh, as it seems to me at least as it is uh, in one way uh, related as well um going to our last topic for the day in unity, we remember World Alzheimer's uh, Awareness Month. So World Alzheimer's Awareness Month is celebrated every year in September <clears throat> with the number of people living with dementia uh, set to almost triple by uh, 2050. This international campaign enables individuals, communities and organizations worldwide to come together in support of those affected um, by this condition and raise public awareness. So the first thing that we need to understand, um, and we have done uh, shows on this uh, before as well, 
Um, but uh, as it is World Alzheimer's Month and we are going through that currently, um, what we need to understand, first of all, is what is Alzheimer's disease and what are the actual symptoms of this as well? So Alzheimer's is the most common cause of dementia, a general term for memory loss and other cognitive abilities serious enough to interfere with daily life. Alzheimer's disease accounts for 60 to 80 percent of dementia cases. The greatest known risk factor is increasing age, and yet, and, and the majority of people will, with Alzheimer's are 65 and older. Alzheimer's disease is considered to be a younger onset uh, Alzheimer's if it's affect uh, uh, if if it affects a person under the age of 65. Younger onset uh, can also be referred to as early onset Alzheimer's. Uh, people with younger onset Alzheimer's can be in the early, middle or even the late stages of the disease. Alzheimer's is a progressive disease where dementia symptoms gradually worsen um, over a number of years. In its early stages, memory loss is mild. But with late stage Alzheimer's, um, individuals lose the ability to carry on, on a conversation and respond to their environment. Uh, on average, a person with Alzheimer's lives four to eight years after diagnosis but can actually live as long as 20 years depending on other factors. Um, we do have uh, Chloe uh, Benoit um, on as a guest. Um, Chloe is Alzheimer's Disease International's Publications uh, Manager and co-author of the 2023 World Alzheimer Report on Dementia Risk Education. Uh, Chloe Benoit, um, peace be upon you. Thank you for joining us on The Breakfast Show. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you for having me. Wa alaikum assalam. And uh, again, thank you for joining us. And um, we, we, we are discussing a very um, important uh, topic. Uh, in Unity, remember World Alzheimer's Awareness Month. Um, the first question we have for you is, what is the uh, significance of Alzheimer's Awareness Month? Um, sure. So like you mentioned, uh, World Alzheimer's Month happens every year in September. And it was created um, a little over 10 years ago, kind of to bring more awareness of dementia and also to help create more advocacy around the condition. Um, a lot of people wrongly believe that Alzheimer's is a normal part of aging, which is not true, which also means that a lot of people go without a diagnosis, without the care and treatment that they need. Um, and that's something we're trying to address. Um, in 2022, I think it's worth mentioning Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia were the leading cause of death in England and Wales. So mm -hmm. we think it's just really important for everyone to be better informed about what the symptoms are, how to care for someone with dementia, and also how to lower or delay your own risk of developing the, the condition. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, you know, can you tell us more about the aims and um, uh, values of Alzheimer's Disease International? Of course. Um, so Alzheimer's Disease International, so also known as ADI, uh, we're an international federation of more than 100 dementia and Alzheimer's associations around the world. So our, what our mission is, is basically to advocate for better diagnosis, care, research and support for people living with dementia and their carers around the world um, until a cure is found and until that cure is accessible to all those who need it. 
Mm-hmm. I see, I see. And, um, you know, this year's theme is uh, never too early and never too late. Um, can you tell us more about this and why it was uh, chosen? Yeah. Um, so this year we decided to focus on uh, the topic of dementia risk reduction um, because um, while most people believe that Alzheimer's and uh, other dementias are conditioned that's uh, genetic, right? That's passed down from parent to children and that there's not much that you can do about it. Um, A research um, in 2020 found that um, addressing 12 modifiable risk factors could actually reduce or delay the number of cases by up to 40%. So that's millions and millions of people around the world who, you know, could um, end up, you know, avoid getting the condition or, you know, delay its onset by a few years. Um, so this is why we chose to fo- focus on this topic uh, this year. And um, the line, never too early, never too late, um, highlights basically that you can start taking steps uh, to take care of your brain uh, at any age. Um, it's never too early to start eating as healthily as you can, to make sure that you're physically active, that you're trying new things to stimulate your brain, um, and that you're staying connected with your family, friends, and community. Those are all things that um, sound simple, but actually have a big impact on uh, your brain on the long term and uh, your likelihood of developing uh, dementia later on in life. and the, the, the never too late part is, is also um, to say, you know, you can start making those changes early on in life, but there's um, it, it's literally never too late to make those changes too. Even after someone's received a diagnosis of dementia, um, there are a lot of things that you can do to slow down the progression of the condition. Um, and, and for someone who, who has dementia, every month or year of relatively good health is just incredibly precious. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's the, the meaning of the campaign. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I'm also, you know, personally, I, I've, when I did read the Never Too Early, Never Too Late, you know, I got a, I got a feeling of um, that. You know, um, it's a it's a it's a sign of anyone who is going through a, a um, anything. It's a sign for them to for for them to hold on to hope that you know it's, it's never too late to um, you know to to make a change. And uh, when when a person is hopeful, then you know that does help um, in their in their journey as well. And you know, I, I got that sort of sense of um, feeling when I read this as well. And um, you know, I I couldn't agree with uh, more with what you said. Um, just just lastly, um, as it usually affects the elderly population, um, um, how how can young people um, get involved in this campaign? Um, yeah, so everyone uh, can go on social media and check out the hashtags uh, never too early, hashtag never too late. Um, we also have the hashtag world alls month, so that's ALZ. Um, and so you can see a lot of uh, what ADI and other organizations are posting on there. Um, you can also read uh, the 2023 World Alzheimer Report on risk reduction on ADI's website, which is alzint.org, so alzint.org, um, which kind of breaks down a lot of the, the risk reduction. There's a lot of uh, 
a lot of information out there and it's very hard to parse through, you know, what's important, what's not. And um, we've tried to help make that um, more easily accessible to people. Um, but beyond the, the, the promotion of ADI, you know, we just really encourage young people to, to learn more about dementia in general. Um, you know, people are living longer, which means um, we're more likely to end up having uh, a relative or acquaintance develop the condition. And uh, like you mentioned, the number of cases in the world is um, is, is um, projected to triple by uh, 2050 if we don't do anything. Um, so there's been a lot of progress in recent years and the kind of development of drugs and uh, to, to treat dementia, but we still don't have a cure. So that makes all efforts to uh, reduce risk, both at the individual and the society level, all the more important. So what I would say to young people is, um, you know, learn more about Alzheimer's and dementia, not just so you can be a good support system for uh, an elderly relative, but also so you can start taking care of your own health and your own brain today. Yeah, yeah, that's well said, well said. Um, thank you, Chloe Benwell, for joining us. Um, it's a very in top, uh, important topic, and uh, we we do appreciate um, your time and your 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 knowledge on answering our, these questions. Um, thank you very much for uh, joining us. Have a lovely day and a beautiful week ahead. My pleasure. You too. Thank you very much. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number for you. And uh, with that, we're going to be going to our last guest for the show, Professor Louise Appel, uh, who is a professor of biochemistry at the University of Sussex and a director of Sussex Neuroscience. She leads a research group that studies the causes of Alzheimer's disease. Uh, following a PhD at the University of Oxford, she continued a career at the University of Toronto, followed by six years in Cambridge, finally setting, uh, settling in Brighton at the University of Sussex. Asami, can peace be upon Good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Hello, nice to talk to you. And uh, the, the pleasure is all ours. Thank you for being with us. Um, dementia is uh, commonly believed to be a normal part of ageing. Is this true and why? Or, or why not even? It, it's, so it's, no, it's not true. And I think um, the, the, this comes from people expecting to become uh, less able to remember things as they age. Um, but actually, Alzheimer's disease specifically is, is a disease where we can see pathology in the brain and we know um, that, that there are causes for that. So it's not an actual part of aging. It's something that we have the potential to tackle and uh, to treat if we can really understand this disease correctly. Okay. Um, your, your research looks at amyloid fibrils uh, as one of the causes of Alzheimer's disease. Can, can you explain to us how these contribute to the pathology of Alzheimer's, please? Uh, I will have a go. So um, what's happening in Alzheimer's disease brains is that there's a, um, a clumping together or an aggregation of proteins, and that's not normal. So that's a part of the reason I say it's a disease rather than a normal part of ageing. Mm-hmm. Um, these proteins start to misfold, so they start to um, assemble together and they form these insoluble structures in um in and around the brain cells. Um, and um, this is a hallmark of Alzheimer's disease, and it's the first thing that Alzheimer, uh, that the, the disease is named after, <clears throat> what, the first thing that he actually saw in the brains of patients. And what we um, are hoping to try and understand, really, is how exactly these contribute to disease. 
Um, we know that they do because um, often when we would see that they're surrounded by uh, dying brain cells. So they seem to be associated with that. And then in the lab, we can see that these proteins seem to be toxic. So if we can fully understand exactly how this is working, and we're still working on that, that's something um, that's ongoing, we can um, come up with um, very specific targets where we can create drugs that will tackle this. Um, so um, there has been a, a little bit of a breakthrough recently by a group in London where they have uh, discovered discovered a mechanism by which um, these these aggregates or amyloid fibrils um, affect the, the health of the brain cells. Um, and, and that's that's a really exciting progress because it means that we can start thinking about how we target that particular pathway. Mm -hmm. And uh, how do you envision the potential impact of, of your research on future treatments for, for Alzheimer's uh, patients as well? So one of the things I often say is I think what we really need to understand is the cause. So um, Alois Alzheimer discovered the disease in 1906, and that's when he rep first reported it. And so we're over 100 years on, and we still don't fully understand this disease. So I think research into this is essential. One of the other things I think is really important is diagnosis, so early diagnosis, because one of the big problems is that uh, the pathology and the disease has actually progressed quite a bit before we start to see symptoms in patients. So what we need to do is to try and find markers, um, early markers of this disease, so that when we do create um, possible therapies, that we can treat people early enough because we can't reverse um, the death of brain cells. That's, that's a really fundamental issue. And so what we really need to do is to be able to treat people early enough. So I think there are two aspects of this. One is trying to understand exactly what the cause is and how we can tackle that, so to find specific targets. And the other thing is to, to try and understand what the first markers are. So can we detect um, the disease in people before they start to show symptoms so that we can treat them perhaps even 10 years earlier than we might start to see their the, the memory loss in, in people. Mm -hmm. And I think that is uh, essential, isn't it? And if, if that was done, then uh, we'd see uh, that this, this statistic from this, uh, from, from this article, which says that it can almost triple uh, or, or is set to, to triple the amount of patients uh, with Alzheimer's uh, by the year 2050. Um, hopefully we would see a change in that uh, and it'd be much, uh, much, uh, much less uh, rather than that being actually fulfilled. Um, Professor Louise Sapel, thank you for being with us, for sharing your expertise. Uh, very ins insightful uh, conversation and discussion that we've had. Um, and we'd love to have you on in the future uh, sometime as well. Thank you again, and we hope you have a wonderful All right. Word. Thank you very much for your for your time. Thank you. Bye-bye right. then. 0208-687-7878. That was Professor Louise Appel, uh, who's a professor of biochemistry at the University of Sussex and a director of Sussex uh, Neuroscience as well. She leads a research group that studies the causes of Alzheimer's uh, disease. Um, and she was sharing her expertise and her thoughts with us. Yeah, indeed. I mean, um, you know, when we look at Islam, when we look at the Holy Quran, we see that 1400 years ago, the Holy Quran, you know, clearly stated the facts about this um, disease in unprecedented detail, um, uh, where, you know, the, the mention of Alzheimer's disease, you know, is not, it is not confined to just one verse. In fact, it is mentioned throughout the Holy Quran so that, you know, men of understanding uh, take heed. And, you know, our callers, um, 
uh, our guests did uh, mention, you know, that uh, the importance of um, taking the lead or, you know, um, working uh, as an uh, youngsters um, eating right and eating eating uh, well, you know, to uh, to prevent such um, such disease. And when we see in the Holy Quran, we see um, we we read, and I quote. And him whom we grant long life, we revert him to a weak condition of creation. And in, again, in another verse, we, we see that it is Allah who created you in a state of weakness. And after weakness gave you strength, then after strength caused weakness and old age. He creates what he pleases. He is the all-knowing and the all-powerful. Now, you know, these verses from the Holy Quran highlight a very fundamental principle of nature. You know, that is the that is the uh, that what human beings, what individuals go through while uh, while age, while aging. You know, our our faculties and abilities undergo a process of decline and you know weakening, uh, eventually leading to a stage where they may experience forgetfulness. Now, the Holy Quran. There are various you know places in the Holy Quran where it mentions um, this, and you know, as Muslims, we are we uh, God Almighty has explained to us the you know, these things that happen with age. And also, the Holy Quran has uh, laid great emphasis on, you know, keeping uh, a good diet and a healthy diet to maintain, um, you know, a, a healthy brain and a healthy body. And this is something that the Holy Quran, you know, uh, uh, time and time again, you know, reminds the reader um, about these um, things. And you know, so that uh, the, and the, the 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 thing that I'd like to mention, so that you know, men of understand can take heed. Mm, most certainly, and we see from 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 the Islamic point of view as well that it, it, the Holy Quran teaches us that whenever uh, any one of us reach old age, whether it's our parents or whoever it may be, then we should always treat them with kindness, patience, and respect as well. And there's so many narrations of the Holy Prophet of Islam as well, uh, which uh, which indicate and show this as well. Just one last thing that I'd like to mention before finishing. Um, this, like as mentioned with our previous guests as well, uh, Alzheimer's, uh, Alois Alzheimer's uh, was reported. Um, he, he's the one who started this, first documented this in 1906 or 1907. But this was actually recorded a thousand years ago, described by Avicenna, uh, who is Ibn Sina, uh, a Muslim scholar as well. So this is very interesting uh, to say this least as well unfortunately we don't have more time to talk about this but uh thank you for being with us and here's the nine o'clock news